0: Back in the studio. Uh, just wait for it.
1: it ah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. What is All going right? on? We are back. Back in the studio, episode 12, we believe. Episode 12, Master Keys Real Estate Slash Success Podcast. Transition is taking place. Yep. Rebranding already. You're here with Neil. Chandler. And today we have a bit of a unique episode. We're not hitting one specific topic. We're gonna be yeah. going over a few different things. Uh, answering some questions that people had and addressing some of the stuff that's in the news right now.
0: Yeah, we're getting some engagement and people have follow-up questions, which is awesome. And certainly if you have something you're wondering about, hit us up. Happy yeah. to have more content to talk about. So, But what's going on with you?
1: Not too much. Another uh, eventful week as always. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing too crazy, honestly. I've been trying to close on those properties that I had some Enviro issues on. So I'm trying to get that done this week. Now it's supposed to be last week. So that's uh, that's moving along, and uh, just renovations and all the other units. My lake house is finally back up to speed. We had to do a new septic there. Yeah, you mentioned. So I think I mentioned it last yeah. time. That's all done. So we're finally racing through that. Concrete's coming soon, and uh, yeah, we're we're getting through it. It's it's coming along. You know, good. Firmed up. I think I firmed up on those deals last time we talked, but the, just getting the financing in place for those and.
0: Yeah, it's a process, right? I mean, it's not like residential buying a single-family home and in this market, like, all right, we got seven days to do our due diligence. We're just going to fire through a quick deposit, a little Mm -hmm. home inspection, wrap up the financing, and we're good to go. Uh, What do you typically put for your commercial deals for due diligence? How long?
1: Uh, Again, I'm bad. So I typically go with like my four weeks so I can just get my Enviro banged off now. That's That's quick. Yeah. And I I tend to let a lot of other things kind of fly through the cracks because I'm like, I'll figure it out. Uh, again, like, like little things like financing, like little, th- that, <laughs> yeah, little things like financing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I typically kind of let those things slide. Uh, I, I, the biggest thing is for me is appraisal and enviro, yeah. right? If I appraise and the enviro is good, then I'm like, I know I can close in this place because yeah. the appraisal. Someone will th- lend on it. Someone will lend on it. And I know I got my 25%, then, yeah. then we're good to go. Actually, don't, I, don't
0: do that. People who are listening, don't, don't do that.
1: I put mean six it, weeks at least for the love of God. It puts a little bit of pressure on. Yeah. But that's you know, and this is you're asking why do people call me sometimes with deals? And it's because I know the listing agents are like, he's gonna make it super easy because he's mm-hmm. only gonna put in two, three weeks or conditions. He's not gonna ask us for anything. And he always firms up and always somehow closes. That's and true. So I that's think true. I think I make their life easy. I always tell all those guys, I tell them I said, Look, you bring me a deal and if I sign a contract, we are gonna close this thing. Like there's no Messing about, and I've kept my word on that. Yeah, so. and that does carry
0: value. I mean, I have the same thing, not maybe to that degree, because I do things a bit more conventionally with standard financing and six-week due diligence, and really they don't start much on the financing due diligence until you have rent rolls and appraisals in. So if you're two weeks at your appraisal, you're really missing that first two weeks. However, I kind of do my inspections and stuff like that up front. I'm like, you show me the unit, I can figure out what's going on with the building generally yeah. speaking. Um, so all that side of the things are smooth, and fortunately. Pretty bankable. Got a good broker, so same sort of deal. Like if I say we're going through with it, we're we're going through with it. Yeah,
1: um, I've started doing sewer scopes. That's another thing I've just started looking into because some buildings yeah. will have multiple sometimes sewer lines going out, and that can be a fairly expensive thing if you have to get into ripping and digging and tearing apart.
0: Yeah, I mean I've sort of looked at it in the sense that okay, if I'm in it for thirty five a door, and you know your ten to twenty doors, you're in it for half a million anyway. Yeah. If I have to rip out a sewer line for twenty grand. Like, what if you do that sewer scope and it comes back with
1: tree roots in it? What are you gonna do?
0: You're gonna say, I don't know, I think I'm not gonna
1: do it. Instead of three million, I want a (laughs) two nine five. Two nine 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 five. Dollar saved, dollar earned. Yeah. Actually, I got that's some good news I got this week is I got my appraisal back on the 19 unit. And I remember if you talk about when we were talking about what we look for in a buy, I like the end value to be at least double my purchase. Mm -hmm. And my end value is more than double my purchase.
0: Atta boy. Oh, this, oh, you're, yeah, as complete. Yeah, my as complete, yeah, on my eyes
1: complete you know. once the rentals are done.
0: Yeah, so what Neil's talking about there is, because you tend to finance your improvements through, uh, basically a construction loan would, would be the easiest way to, yeah. to think about it. Mortgage plus. Yeah, you're, you're buying it for X price. Your goal is to have the completed project be worth double that. Yeah. And so you get a as complete appraisal, which is an appraisal saying, yeah, when you do all that work, it's going to be worth this. And if it's worth double you're, you're happy with that. So it sounds like it came back more than
1: that. Yeah. yeah. Which also makes the lending, again, it helps the lending a lot because you can, it gives you the option to go to a lot of banks and they're like, wow, he's not really hitting a crazy loan to value because there's a ton of room there. And so they're a lot more easy to work with. And when the hiccups happen, and if they do happen, more likely than not, if you need to borrow an extra 100K, there's usually a bit of room there to do so, mm-hmm. which yeah. is nice.
0: Speaking of, I can't remember if we talked about this on air or off air, but I was getting my appraisals back and he told me my rents are too low. Did we talk about this on we, air? I don't know if
1: we talked about it on air, but Man. I did hear about it. We did? Tanner says we did. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I won't rehash that, but uh, I got those two number that I was comfortable with, but the reality is I'm just not going to be able to pull out as much equity as I hoped. I'm probably down like 300 grand of equity that I hope to pull out, which isn't deal breaker or anything like that, but uh, it's kind of a bummer. More money spent less sad. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did get all the appraisals back and I had really nice upswings on the land. Land is tricky. We haven't talked a lot about land on here and maybe we'll do an episode on that. Yeah. Land is really hard to finance up front. Big time. It is very speculative. You have to carry it for a long time. However, there can be really nice lifts on it If you buy it for the value of what it is, say there's a house on a lot and it's worth such and such by direct comparison approach as we talked about when you're just comparing it to other homes in the area. But as then a redeveloped site, um, if you go through a planning process or if you just know what the as of right there and change it from a residential appraisal, a residential valuation to a commercial multi-unit, you can get some big lifts there. And so I had a site that I bought two properties that were around – I think combined I was right around a million – and that came back, I think, at 2.7. Nice. Um, based on just a really preliminary massing study of, okay, how much buildable square footage do you have there? And then another site that I think I paid, because I've had it for a few years now, I paid around four hundred, and it came back at $2 million. Um, so, like, nice those are work. really good landlifts. Now, I have to carry these properties, and the former has you know, tenants that, that, that cover everything. The latter has no tenants at all. Like it's a, I made a community garden. It, it, like, yeah, yeah. You know, But it's a nice lift there because that improves my net worth. So when I want to go and get bankable on something else, yeah. um, I've got a lot of net worth behind me. And I'm going to build on those sites eventually. And the, that land value will serve as part of the equity Towards. to build yeah. um, the building. Because when they say, well, this building is going to be worth $15 million, what can you put in? It's like, well, I already got one and a half million dollars in the land. So there's my first 10%. Yeah. Now I need to come up with another 15 or, or something like that. Yeah. That's a simplified explanation. but um, yeah, so It plays
1: in, it, especially even when you're going with CMHC and things like that, they will consider that very highly.
0: Net worth matters. Yeah, and they, they want to see it. And the yeah. value
1: in the land. Yeah. Uh, when you do your financing and they're offering you whatever it is, 85% financing construction, that includes land value. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of work it sometimes that you can get very close to having a good portion of your construction covered.
0: And that's precisely what I'm doing. Once I have everything locked in on the 60-odd units that I'm building in the spring, I'll show people exactly where all the equity came from. And um, But the hope is to put as little cash out of my pocket uh, down on it as possible, but to just show a lot of it in the equity in the land. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of...
1: I also want to just mention that we have a new guest.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was trying um, to think of this poem, and someone if someone knows this, there's, there's going to be some poetry majors out there where it's like the rat becomes... This, the unit of currency, and it was in Don DeLillo. He uh, was talking about how
1: broken my generation is, and
0: <laughs> 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 no, that was a different conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, ever see Cosmopolis? Don DeLillo, like this movie, but it's a book. Just told you, you know, I'm the guy from vamp. What, what's the vampire thing? I just Team. told you
1: what type of media I consume, and you're asking me that <laughs> question. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We're not. Watching I'm the same so ashamed. Things. I won't even say it on here. Yeah, but anyway, what else is going on? Oh. Not much. So I was going to say just a quick reference of why there's a rat on the table. Splinter. Holding a money <laughs> holding a money symbol. We discussed it in the previous one, the giant rat that came out of one of my buildings. Oh, That yeah. my guys, is one of the very first episodes. Uh, anyways, instead of getting the real rat stuffed and brought onto the table, <laughs> we, uh, we've decided <laughs> to use a, a plush rat and in place of him.
0: How's that for size? I've he- seen rats close to that big. I,
1: think. I was going to say, I think he's a little smaller than the real one. Gross. So just keep that in mind. That's disgusting. <laughs>
0: you know what? The resemblance <laughs> is striking. Get that side by side <laughs> Oh, no, there. okay.
1: <laughs> no. We're editing that out. <laughs> oh. Whoa. oh, man. I held the rat against my head, and that's what he had to say. No way. <laughs> Next time you're in the in the <clears> newspaper,
0: <throat> I'm going to send that image. <laughs> oh. I'll say, as provided. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pictured here.
1: Okay. Uh, so that's a great time to transition <laughs> into what happened in Halifax oh. this week. And so obviously everyone's aware of the fact that we have uh, some housing issues, major housing issues, and we've had recently the issues with the tents in public Mm -hmm. spaces, and we went through kind of a removal process. Obviously the tents came back because the issue wasn't fully resolved. Uh, I saw all sorts of different news articles explaining that people were in hotels and different uh, options, but then they got booted out of those after a few weeks. Um, And so we actually have, on Shabucto Road, I think this is it, Meagers Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is quite a dense population yeah. of tents there now. I don't yeah, know if there's other locations, today. but uh, anyway. There are a few other locations for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's one down at the bottom of South Street oh, we go. Um, near, if anyone knows, down South Street where the bridge is kind of south end Oxford. Uh, there's a little encampment there. I can't think of, uh, of others offhand, but there's certainly some around.
1: It's come back because the issue wasn't resolved effectively.
0: Yeah, and uh, definitely... Well, we spoke about this at the time. I talked a lot about the fact that there were alternative accommodations, and some people did not have the information or did not like uh, those other accommodations. And that information came from council, and and since then they've walked that back a little bit, a bit. So I'm doing the same in in return, I guess. If Anyone here – like my counselor, Sam Austin, I think is the best counselor in the city. He and Way Mason are kind of exactly what you hope for, Way, over in Halifax, for your public representatives, like truly public service people who I, I just think the world of. I think they're phenomenal. Uh, but Sam writes a really fantastic blog where he essentially unpacks all of Council's decisions, how he voted, why he voted, how he did. And he flat out in his uh, most recent – what do you call it? Issue of his blog? I don't know. What do you you call blog episodes? Um, Posts posts. or something? Yeah, okay. He said, you know, they relied, as counsel, relied on information about the availability of alternative units, and it turned out that that information was incorrect. So, you know, they do feel like they were well-intentioned and they acted on the information they had, but that information was not right. I'm paraphrasing, but he said that, that the information they had wasn't wrong. And this is why they've now taken these New approaches and are providing new stock, which is also something I was adamant about. This is not going to change from the private sector. This has nothing to do about new construction developers building something for these individuals. The government is going to have to intervene. And interestingly, this came from municipal level, like the councilors, Halifax, who does not have a housing housing mandate, mandate, who do not have a housing mandate. They went out and did this of their own accord and are now hoping that the provincial government will step in to support with some of the funds. So what are, what are they working on?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, with that, they went into getting some modular homes, I guess you would call them, or modular units. Yeah, Which is – I know everyone thinks of trailers, and I think they might – I suspect they might look like that even. Yeah, um, totally do. But that nowadays, they, they can make them quite a bit nicer, and the interiors are usually quite nice, and, and they've kind of – they've come a long way, I think, since what people will assume when the kind of the – I'd say the context of trailer gets goes up. But anyways, modular home housing units, uh, they are buying 24 units, which will be, it gives you a bedroom and a private bathroom.
0: Yeah, it'll be hard for people to see here on the screen. I mean, you could look at this. You can find this online if you go to either Sam's uh, site or WayMason's site. Yeah. Um, and to speak to modulars, Modular and prefab are, I, I think, kind of the way of the future. You and I can talk about this at a certain episode. Yeah. Um, they are very well built. And part of the benefit is they are built in a factory the exact same every single Climate time. controlled. Never exposed to the elements. Yeah. And rigorously inspected for code that's inspected once and then replicated over and over and over again. Yeah. These models, I think, are probably similar. I saw people commenting this online too. If you're working out west, you know how they have those campsites out west and they there. bang these things out? Yep. Um, it's certainly tight in terms of the number of people in there.
1: It, they're not they're not huge spaces, but they're not bad. You have you have a room, a desk, uh, and a private bathroom with a sh- stand-up shower uh, and a vanity. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I'm kind of confused with is they're buying 24, uh, but it says it's set and then they show a layout for six rooms in one, or eight rooms, sorry, in one, and then they say it's only going to house 73 people. So, I guess there's going to be a bunch of them that are like shared space, kitchen space. Yeah, I think they'll
0: probably, some of that also might be COVID. It might be, you know, couple situations and stuff like that. I'm sure there's rationale. Oh, it says here. That. The
1: majority of the 24 units will have three to four bedrooms.
0: Right, right. So, this is kind of a. Well, a few one.
1: of them will solely share, do laundry, and a few of them will just be kitchens. Mm-hmm. All the bedrooms will include a single bed, a mattress, a desk with a drawer, a lock in closet, a private bathroom, sink, toilet, mirror, and shower. I mean, these will be a big upgrade. These will definitely be a big upgrade and it's a step in the right direction for sure.
0: Also, I like the idea with the modular is that they are movable. I mean, this is yeah. permanent in the sense that they're year round, they're insulated, they have running water and electrical, all these niceties and they're, they're safe at the same time. They don't have to be a permanent thing because there's been some concern with the residents in the area. Everyone – the logical question is like, well, where are these going to go and is this going to be a permanent thing? And I think they're still looking at where these can go long term. But now they will have the supply in these emergency circumstances to provide to people.
1: Exactly, Because that's yeah, – the other thing realistically, you can't put up an apartment building or any building – in a short period of time. Like it's going to take 12, 16 months. Now, so even these
0: are hard to get right now. True. Because one of the programs, we talked a lot about the federal government and some of the housing initiatives they were rolling out. The liberals who won had a big spending allowance for um, homes for in indigenous communities. And what are they building? These. Yeah. Not, not this floor plan, yeah. but prefab modular units. So Kent, the Kent homes of the world are going to have this backlog yeah. of a production line so they were able to get their hands on these pretty quickly they probably modified existing stock somehow but uh they, they are great in, in turnaround times oh. i think it's going to be a big industry
1: oh 100 percent. i think uh the one big thing with these that concerns me is and i feel like it's always what happens is they'll go out they'll buy these they'll plunk them all in a location and they'll do little to no upkeep mm-hmm. and then it just turns like it gets like it gets low, grimy. it gets crummy, yeah. you know what I mean? Like the grass won't be mowed, they won't make any effort to put in like driveways or anything like that. They're like, well, they're not going to be driving there. Yeah, but they might have people dropping them off or a cab dropping them off or whatever. And so then it turns into this really, so I think the big thing is it's good that they're doing this, but then I hope that they make an effort to also keep the spaces in reasonable uh, condition, you know what I mean? Like I think, I forget, I should have done more research on it, but there's the, the, the one country, I forget what it was, that does such a great job with their affordable housing and they said the reason it doesn't feel like we have an issue with affordable housing or we don't have like these slummy neighborhoods is because we put affordable housing in every neighborhood Mm -hmm. and we upkeep the buildings as just as nice as all the other ones. And so from the outside, it's like there's no different. Even on the inside, within the hallways and everything, everything's great. So Yeah,
0: I mean, what do they say about necessity being the mother of invention? It's sad that we're in a situation where these were necessary, but they were and then now we have them and learning how to properly manage them is going to be the next necessity. I know that with the Gray Arena, which is... um, kind of an old hockey arena in North End Dartmouth that is also being used for temp- temporary accommodations to varying degree of success so far. There was a lot of pushback at a community meeting the other day from local residents who were like, I'm not comfortable with this being here. And yeah. I understand that a lot of people will jump to – that's the whole NIMBY attitude, not in my backyard. But there's other people who were – you know, there are issues associated with these encampments and some of the individuals in mental health and drug use and, and all these things where – Residents are going to not necessarily be on board for that being in their neighborhood uh, without a clear cut plan as to how it's going to be managed. Agreed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hundred percent agree. I think like I mean to what you said about this, like, there's like gathers. Yeah, obviously, people who might have health issues, drug issues, whatever they might be. You go into the most expensive neighborhoods in the city, and there's still those people who are going to be mm-hmm. there. Totally. So again, if I think if they make an effort, like you're saying, to manage and maintain what they're establishing. I think it'll become less of a thing where people are the NIMBY, the, the not my backyard concept will start to kind of fade because people are like, you know, they put it there it didn't really impact the amount of population of people that we're having issues with and they keep it in a really good condition. So it's no longer like, you know what I mean? Totally.
0: I mean, no one complains about there being a hospital in their neighborhood. If you start looking at these things as a social welfare s- situation where we're, we're we're doing this to be a better society, I think, you know, and it's run well, people will be on board for that. I think part of the residents of Dartmouth, the reason they were maybe not upset is they maybe felt like, oh, so you just kind of looked at the map and, and you decided North End Dartmouth of all places, because historically North End Dartmouth has had a bit of a rougher go. Yeah, um, it's was arguably like under service for a period of time. It was lower income. There was a lot of crime there and that area has dramatically improved. Yeah, And I think they sort of felt a little bit maybe slighted that of all the neighborhoods in town, like, why did you choose here? But it's a really convenient location for accessibility, the bridges.
1: Yeah. So anyway. Even but Even land availability. 100% true. So that's in the news. What else is going on? I mean, that was the big one in the news for recently in Halifax we wanted to go over. Uh, we wanted to talk and answer some questions because we've been so yeah. aggressively asking people to comment. And now we've gotten some comments. Finally, some people took the bait. Actually, you know what? I lied to you. Maybe we haven't talked to CMHC. Well, do we want to start with that?
0: Because someone asked about the CMHC. So we want to do that as one of our last questions.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll do that. But yeah, so we've been asking you guys to give some questions and some feedback. And thank you everyone so much for listening. We're actually starting to have a few listeners. And lots of you guys are starting to give us some feedback, whether it's email, uh, DMs, comments, whatever it is. We love it all. We're reading them all trying to respond to as many as possible. So we have a few ones that we want to go after today and and try and get back some answers. I think these are some questions that people, more than one person probably is thinking. Yeah. Um, So
0: one of the questions was about the cap rate and uh, Walena wrote that cap rates do not measure returns. Think about this example and answer my question. A seller in a 10% cap rate market has $100,000 net operating income. He can sell that for $1 million. $1 Right, $1 million is $100,000 net operating income, a 10% cap. But in a 5% cap rate market, a seller with $100,000 net operating income can sell their property for two hundred or $2 million. So how can twice the return sell for half the price? And they say, I guarantee you cannot answer that question.
1: Directing this to Chandler because he did the the cap rate explanation. (laughs) I was passing on this question. I mean, it's a hard question,
0: question to answer because it's a very confusing proposition. I think there's a bit of misunderstanding there. So, what they're saying is that cap rates come from an income approach. Where you need the probable market value and then the cap rate of return, and I think some of the confusion was we were looking at how you can reverse engineer these things. It's right that if you know there's a million dollar asset and it yields ten or a hundred thousand dollars of net operating income, that is a ten percent cap and in another area, the cap rate if it's a two million dollar property, it's a five percent cap. I don't really understand how they're saying, well, how can you get you know something sell for you get twice the return for half the price. I think they're just kind of misconstruing uh, how the reverse cap rate was is sort utilized. Set up, yeah, yeah. So I wish we could answer that question. Maybe Walina will comment again with some some clarity. But effectively, the cap rate is your return on a given asset, and you have two different assets in a given area. They may offer a different, you know, return. So I don't understand how the net profit on an asset couldn't be seen as a rate of return. But uh, so that's one question. I think well, maybe Calvin. we'll
1: hold Ben to the next one. Yes, yeah, Calvin. You know,
0: Calvin is a buddy of ours, or I guess of yours, but I think he sells real estate in the Valley, is it?
1: Yeah, he's with Remax Banner in the Valley.
0: Right on. Uh, He had a question about, or not even a question, he was just remarking how he... Use that CMHC down payment matching that we had talked about briefly, just sort of passed over. He gave an example of where he used it, and, and it was great. Um, so we're going to revisit that in a future episode where we talk about residential financing. The interesting thing also he asked about, what do you guys think about the PC's idea to increase property taxes and de-transfer taxes on Oda Province owners? He read this on their website prior to election, I haven't heard much since. Have you heard anything about that, Neil?
1: I haven't heard too too much. But yeah, the general idea of the PCs increasing property taxes and deed transfer on out-of-town buyers. I don't I don't like I don't like these ideas. In general, all the all the foreign buyer things I'm not a huge fan of for a bunch of reasons. Like the number one for me also is like, again, in our in our most foreign buyer markets, it's like a three to five percent ratio that are buying. In Atlantic Canada, it's like 0.5%. Yeah. So it's like one in every 200 people maybe is a foreign buyer. I don't think it's good, though, to make it so and like intensely difficult to come in. But, but you know what, maybe on the flip side, like you look at it as, you know what, Canada makes a huge effort to be a really strong country for so many different reasons that, yeah, that we are considered to be a bit higher end. And so if you want to come here, you kind of have to pay the price to do so and we can kind of capitalize on that versus trying to have to capitalize on people that already live here mm-hmm. and are part of the, the, the current country. But I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm just never a big fan of like making these separate targeted fees and taxes for certain people and then not for others because I feel like it gives you an un, unequal playing field. But I guess on the, on the flip side, I understand that, you know, they, they make a huge effort to make this country the way it was. And then for people moving here, yeah, it's a benefit for them. And and so if they really want to be here, then then we do that. I think these things come more from the idea of like it's popular opinion for people to be like, oh, got outbid by a foreign buyer on this house. Yeah. And now I ruined it. And so then that becomes common, common oh, verbiage. Easy scapegoating. They, yeah. yeah, easy scapegoating. And they, they then the government just throws it in there to kind of, appease people like, oh, they're also gonna deal with the foreign buyers like they're gonna slow them down.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how things become so commonplace in their narrative that people start to believe them without ever questioning it. I mean, there was someone posted the other day on Facebook, and this is a digression, but someone's like, Oh, I can't believe, you know, the tax breaks given to the rich and so on. If we just tax them more we'd have all this money and blah, blah, blah. Be like, Yeah, tax them. They don't they don't pay their share, blah, blah, blah. It's like well, the top 1% of earners in Canada make about 10% of all income. Yeah. right. So they make a disproportionate amount of income. But they also pay about 15% of the total tax. So they are technically paying more than their share. Like they're not paying their share only in that they're paying more than their share. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they should still be paying more than that is another question. But this idea that uh, high-income earners aren't paying – uh, the same rate is, is again, only not true in that they're paying more than everyone else. Um, so this mm-hmm. is another thing like people are blaming foreign investment for these rising prices, but I don't think that's accurate, especially not here in Nova Scotia. The other issue I had with this is a detransfer and a lot of property taxes a municipal revenue stream and municipally set. So the provincial government coming in here and saying, all right, we're going to add this on top of your municipal taxes. I can't imagine the municipalities loving that. I also think there are certain municipalities in the province that are actively trying to encourage... Uh, outside investment, yeah, and this may be counterintuitive to that. But uh, another one, uh, AJ wrote. AJ Brown.
1: Uh, would love to know more about what type or what size of projects you guys get involved with. I mean, I'll speak for myself first. Uh, we kind of discussed it, I think, more recently in one of our last episodes. Mm-hmm. But for me now, I would say I'm getting involved in, I'd say, double digits minimum sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Like I'd like to be 10 plus units if I'm buying an existing structure. And hopefully if I'm building, I'd like to be around the 50 units for the first one. And I quickly, as as quick as possible, get to to 200 plus units per transaction sort of thing, whether I'm buying or building. But yeah, so right now it it literally started with single family homes, went to duplex, triplex. Then it went to six units, 11 units, 12s, 19s. It's a very like normal progression Mm -hmm. kind of through the steps of size, it's very difficult to kind of jump the steps unless you have cash from somewhere else or a ton of equity for some reason. Uh, even like going at the progression that I had, I got fortunate because of the timing. Uh, jumping those, those steps can be kind of difficult. And time's your friend. It, it, I'd say more it's difficult if you're trying to do it all in two or three years. But if you do it in progression, like, okay, over 10, 15 years, if you, you put together 50 units to then jump into a single 50 unit building after 15 years is not out of this world because you'll mm-hmm. have all the equity built up that will allow you to make that next step. But yeah, so my, my current size, uh, like I said, I have around 80 units once I close these next few. And uh, and then I'd like to start getting into building some new stuff around maybe 50 to 60 units per, per project.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of covered it all there. I think the easy thing is is we're not really looking at duplexes or triplexes or four units anymore unless there's some sort of land play associated with that. Yeah, um, Obviously... Double digits for the Maltese is great. It just makes your life so much easier. They're easier to lift and they're easier to refinance and all the things that we've kind of covered in previous episodes. I think we're both sort of trying to focus a bit more on the new construction side of things. Yeah. So the permits that I've got started uh, for 60 – around 60 units – Um, In downtown, that's kind of – it's going to be my biggest building and it's also going to be sort of the scale that like Neil talked to. I like the idea of building anywhere between like 40 and 60. I think that's a really sweet number. It's a manageable size product. It's also easy to sell if you ever want to sell the project because not everyone can do 100 doors. Um, So, that's kind of where I guess we are and and aspire to be. Why aren't you buying – this is a question from Tyler. Why aren't you buying one of the many vacant buildings in Truro versus building new? I actually was curious about this question because I was like, what vacant buildings are there in Truro? Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll be honest, like, I don't spend a lot of tr- time in Truro. This was a particular opportunity that came across my desk and it, it was a situation where I would not have bought the property otherwise, like it's a six-unit building. I wouldn't have bought that normally except for the fact that there was an underlying land play where it could be redeveloped into a multi-unit building. And as a result, have that giant lift that I talked about at the start of, of the episode here when I was talking about land plays and getting a development agreement and the beautiful thing is when you buy a residential building you can finance it a lot easier than you can land so that was kind of a perfect situation if there's vacant buildings in truro i'd be curious as to what they are so yeah to the dms to send me these vacant buildings in truro because i certainly they wouldn't be multi-unit vacant buildings yeah so I, maybe there's a question there about converting I think it's some, some old commercial space yeah, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of financing and creative funding coming for that down the road because there's a lot of talk, again, in those federal platforms about converting existing vacant commercial space. And I've seen a couple in Halifax where guys were buying these buildings with the plan to convert them internally to, to be residential. Yeah, I think you have to figure out what your niche is. And certainly if there was an end play there, I'd be interested in doing it, but I can't speak to that specifically.
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't looked at Truro too much. I have kind of explored a little bit outside of the city. I was trying to make a plan in Kentville there for a while. I was talking
0: about Kentville just today.
1: Yeah. I For me, I'm just a little bit concerned almost about the end values on these where building costs are through the roof. I know there's people building a lot in Truro, there's people building a lot in Kentville. They're good markets. I just don't know how insane the demand is because it's not something that I'm local to. And I, honestly, as terrible as it sounds, I'm a little bit jaded because I feel like I know these these towns like from 10 years ago and so I just can't imagine going and dropping uh, a brand new building in some of these locations and get the rents that I need to cover the cost, right? Yeah, and this
0: is always the big question. like I think there's something like a thousand approved units floating out there in Truro just right now, and there's gonna be probably another five hundred by the time this year ends. Yeah. Um, and so do we think that there's you know that market can absorb four hundred brand new units? Sure. Yeah, can they absorb eight hundred? Well, okay, maybe. Can they absorb fifteen hundred? These are things that'll be determined over the next little while.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure it will. Uh, like, you look at our migration numbers; they're crazy. But I, I, you know, what's funny is I look at what I'm saying to that is the same thing that people said to me when I started buying some of the locations that I bought in within the city. And that's because what I was going
0: to, I was going to put you on blast for that. we are like, oh, I'm, I think well, that was 10 years ago. Like, uh, what about Spryfield 10 years ago, man?
1: Like, yeah, even five like years ago. In, in hindsight, yeah. A hundred percent. And so, but I didn't know any different because when I got into real estate, Spryfield had already started all this new construction mm-hmm. and all these new things were happening. And so I could see the light versus, and I wasn't really jaded because I didn't know it from before.
0: Yeah. And right? a lot of thing is though, like do what you know. Right. Yeah. I, I'm always this, if you're gonna invest somewhere that you don't know, do your research, get a team involved that knows that area because
1: I just know. I just I'm very I struggle to see how they can get the end value numbers out of these buildings and these places.
0: Well, the cost of construction is less there. I know we're saying, oh, you know, it's the same price wherever you build it. In those areas you can do more above ground parking. Yeah. Right, which lowers your cost per door by probably twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, right. You've got a sprawling enough space that you're going wood construction as opposed to concrete, and even though wood's been really expensive, you're still looking at a cheaper product down there. So you yeah. can probably save ten percent on building costs. Yeah. So you put those together, that's twenty percent
1: less. Yeah,
0: right. I, I think there's a, a model there.
1: I'm, I mean, there must be because obviously there's a ton of people going in for permitting. And there's tons of people building it, so I'm sure there is. I guess it just it concerns me. And, I mean, this is something that we'll talk about probably at the end of this episode, just in general, new construction and, and these high rents, uh, where I have some concern and why I haven't necessarily pushed really hard to get started on one.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, Neil's, yeah. uh doom and gloom. Uh, yeah. Speaking of doom and gloom, uh, <laughs> the last – Gen S was sort of asking, well, what do you think of all the news? This was probably in response to our episode about uh, the bubble and – or whether or not there was one. Our position was that, eh, not really. There's some things going on, but, but um, nothing resembling a bubble. But CMHC – released uh, their most recent report and changed the risk from the Canadian market from moderate to high. And that included an assessment of our market here in Halifax, switching from moderate to high risk as well. Neil, what do you think?
1: Well, I'm first going to say that there's only three levels, by the way. There's low, moderate, and high. Again, I don't know who can see what's on the screen. You can see all the different markets that they looked at. It's basically all the capital cities. So, yeah, there's low, moderate, and high. They have done this before with Halifax. CMHC's always had a very weird outlook on Halifax. And I think for the simple fact that they don't have a lot of people on the ground here. Um, and it, it is a weird market to look at from the outside. The number one thing I think that caused them to say that is they said that the price increases and sale prices that are going on are outpacing kind of the household threshold. So, the, And they, they label that as the fundamental housing price. So they define the fundamental housing price as what a household should be able to afford based on average expenses and mm-hmm. average incomes yep. and things like that.
0: This goes back to our, you know, 35% of gross household income, what we talked about in a previous episode. Exactly, yeah, 100%. About,
1: yeah. um, and so like, I, it's, that's like their big item. I think it's kind of funny. Like, so they have uh, four metrics that they use to combine to give you market vulnerability. And the first one is overheating. And they say that's moderate. Uh, price acceleration, they consider it moderate. Overvaluations, they say, are moderate, and excess inventory, they say, is low, which um, means there's a shortage. That means there's a yeah. shortage of housing. So honestly, overall, the average is slightly lower than moderate. But then when they combine them all, somehow the market vulnerability goes too high. Uh, so I'm not 100 percent sure how that happens. The only some real of its parts, Neil. Some of its parts. Yeah. <laughs> Something's the sum of its parts. I get that its, a little bit. Some yeah. of its parts. So I mean a little bit, but then yeah, so they I think the biggest one that kinda of stuck out to me is that they said the fundamental housing price is not is being outpaced. But I kinda disagree and I mean I think a lot of people are gonna give me flack on this. Yeah, incomes aren't necessarily flying up directly immediately as fast because you're looking let's say you're on a salary and this year you're making fifty and next year you're only gonna make fifty one or fifty seven hundred or something. But on average for new positions, I would tend to agree or believe that our average wages have gone up by a lot, like maybe not exactly the thirty percent like the housing market, but pretty darn close. And I mean, the proof is like Amazon's here now; they're trying to hire. They started their hiring at fifteen bucks; they couldn't get anyone. Sixteen bucks couldn't. I think they're going to like eighteen dollars now. So that there is a, that's twenty percent. And I mean, that's on the low end. But it's the same with all the professional jobs. You're seeing them having to continuously uptick the offerings to get people on board. All the trades. You used to be able to hire trades at, at 20 $21, $22 an hour. Now you can't get any good trades under 27 28 30 34 Like I've seen – I know people working 34 bucks an hour. That's a 70 that's a k plus year position now. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm – I th- and I think – but it's like everything. Like I think that that's going to lag a little bit, right? Like you're going to see that chart showing the wage increases. That's going to take a year two or two to, to really show up. Um, and so they're seeing these house prices go up and they're not seeing necessarily the wage increase immediately to follow. Additionally, a lot of the, not a lot, but a bunch of the people too that have come here that are buying recently, like the 5,000 that moved in from Ontario, I think it was just this quarter, was it 5,000 people, I think? Yeah, I heard some, I don't know the exact number, but yeah. Yeah, well, of those 5,000, I willing mean, to about 50% of them are still getting paid in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I know of home, all, yeah. all all totally. of my Ontario clients are, are moving here with a job still in Ontario, mm-hmm. working from home and going back and forth. So our numbers don't show anything great, but they're yep. making 125K a year. And they're living here.
0: Well, this is the funny thing about numbers. If you scroll up here for a second, Tanner, um, look on, look at this on the right hand side. Evidence of price acceleration detected. House prices prices increased in twenty twenty one, following on their growth in the second half of twenty twenty. House prices increased. Yeah, kind of an odd odd word uh, odd sentence. Year to date average MLS price of a single family house in Dartmouth has grown by twenty eight percent. On the peninsula by 76%. So, like, that's not accurate. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not accurate. Obviously, you've got some outliers here that have skewed this data. uh, And this is what happens when you have smaller sample sizes. Like, we just know factually that that number is not correct. Um, So, sometimes you need to be wary about what has been, you know, sampled to, to get those results. Obviously, you throw a bunch of new construction that takes up a disproportionate amount of the uh, the sample size, and you're going to get oddities like that. I think it's also worth noting that, as you can see on the other side, uh, this is the same rating we got back in March. So I can understand Jen's question and concern bringing it up right now because it's recent and it's in the news. But this is also the rating we got back in March. Is that we are a you know the the risk is high in this current market. The, the the market is vulnerable. Whether or not you agree with that's another question, but this isn't a change since March. The other thing, and I don't see it here anywhere in particular, but in reading articles and reading this report, they said the average host price in Canada had now risen to around 760,000. 760,
1: some, like or something like that. Which yep. is a lot of money.
0: Yep. Um, and it's skewed by these major markets that they're here sampling from. Way right? higher than our average. Yeah. Our average is somewhere in the mid fives. So, I'm not saying the mid-fives. Is 4 to mid-upper fives, 580, something like that? Is I that where it is? Works? It's lower fives. Really? Yeah. I think. Okay. But
1: I will say mid-fives around yeah. there. Yeah.
0: So, I guess the question we need to ask ourselves in Halifax is, well, are we a below average priced market? Yeah. I would say we're not. And that means technically we kind of have room to grow before we're pushing on that threshold of you know because if you look at these regions that they sample Victoria Vancouver Edmonton Calgary Saskatoon Regina Winnipeg Hamilton Toronto Ottawa Montreal Quebec Moncton and Halifax the reason they s- sample these is because those are the major markets which in theory means they are they can be substituted from one another if you don't like your situation in Ottawa you could potentially move to Halifax and have a similar city lifestyle so yeah. we are at the low end of the average across this spectrum I would argue that we still have some room to grow before we're going to be pushing the limits of what this market will support.
1: Uh, I tend to agree. The big one the big one for me when I start to really get a little bit concerned is like especially on the new construction side because that's where I find the prices get a little bit crazy quick. It's when it gets to the point where they're building a bazillion brand new houses and they could technically sell them for less than the other ones are selling for. Right? Like so for example, right. a new construction one today in West Bedford firmed up for a million bucks. Mm-hmm. That sold for $600 2 years ago. Mm-hmm. They had done nothing to it, just a brand new house. Actually, it sold for 800 this at the start of this year, and it resold today for a million bucks. But could someone go in that neighborhood, buy that lot, build that exact same house for sub a million? Actually, I think they could. Uh, and that's where I get concerned because I'm like, okay, so if the builders were to start ripping through it, there could be some some issue there because then you start, that's when you get that point of like, okay, now there's an oversupply, but we're I, so far gone I, on our think, excess I, inventory. Exactly. That, that'd be a long time to get to that turning point. Uh, especially like also what they said, like Clayton Developments ran out of land, which hasn't happened in 160 years and they are now out of building lots. So it's not like this is gonna be an issue that's gonna necessarily pop up for us. So again, to kind of reaffirm that I'm not overly concerned. But it's also
0: dive, dive into the numbers here because another one of the indicators that they were talking about, oh my gosh, things might be slowing down here, is that the number of new housing starts are down. Well, if yep. there's no land, yeah, and the builders are so backlogged, yeah, how are they going to go out there and asking for new permits and new housing starts? Yeah, they can't do it. So is that a reflection of the market slowing down or the market being so damn hot that we're sold out everywhere? So you can take that data and decide what you want it to suggest to you about the market. I think the fact that housing starts and permits are down is reflective of the fact that oh my gosh, land is so rare that we can't build homes fast enough which doesn't mean the market's going to slow down. No. I understand your point though and we were talking about substitution when we talked about the the uh, an assessment of the market in a previous episode. With the areas where I'm most concerned about market vulnerability is when you are out buying a standardized product in an outside peripheral area yeah. because if people can substitute something else for it be it a, a different home that's the exact same or a new home that's cheaper yeah, you might have a problem on your hands. Those are the areas that I do think could be vulnerable, but I don't think they're there yet. I think they.
1: No, I, and again, that's where I'm at. I'm saying I don't think we're there yet. I think our prices are touching on that, but at the same time, we have no land availability, so that cranks the value of land up, and we have no builder availability, which cranks the cost of construction up. So maybe they're not. You felt we were still going to go like this until the spring. Do you still feel that way? Uh, no. I never. I'm. I'm thinking. The, Tanner, bring, oh up the God, the, bring up the tape the tape. I don't think prices are going to maintain to increase. I think we're going to have still. I think we're going to slow down on the price increase. I don't. I don't think it makes sense that we continue to price up and price up and price up. I think there's still room to grow, but I think at a much more reasonable. Like I don't oh, think we're, we're going to we, have to check the receipts. We on the are going to have to check the receipts for sure. I don't think I said that. I think I may <laughs> have said. I, mean, I did take some heat from someone, from one of the listeners about this. I think there's room for prices to increase, but not at this pace of thirty percent over a year. Totally.
0: Year. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree.
1: And I think I think I think the growth is going to maintain consistent for a long time, like a lot many years to come. Uh, and our our turnover and our our inventory is going to stay low. But again, I don't think it's going to be or like seventy six percent. I don't think we can hit seventy six percent year over year. I'm not sure what blue they I must have included know. like multi units. That's what it is. It must be like the big multis that get listed because a bunch of big multis sold this year.
0: Totally, like that, our, that, that's our, our, so our million plus
1: it. multis never yeah. used to sell, and this last year we've sold like multiple two three million dollar properties on in the on the peninsula. Which you'd never see before.
0: Yeah, and we just designated a bunch of streets as corridor where all of a sudden a home that was worth $500,000 is now worth a million bucks. Like, So th- there's some <coughs> yeah. there, there's nuance to this stuff that doesn't come out in the wash. I think the takeaways for this from me, just in, in returning to the, the question, yeah, one, it's the same rating we got in March. Yeah, Two, we're still almost $200,000 below the national average. Yeah, And three, I think if you delve into some of the nuances of, of what they're assessing here, I don't think they all hold water. Also, CMHC has a big... This is, this is going to be my – coming from my perspective. CMHC likes the idea of rental. CMHC yeah. is, is pro-rental from a they, – they think that more Canadian citizens should be renting and not buying their homes. Uh, they don't come out and say that, but that's kind of been a lot to do their with mandate. their mandate. Um, and I remember because they had a CMHC person here speak to our office, I think it was in 2020 or 2019. I can't remember. But at some point, they are projecting a 4 to 6% drop in the Halifax market. Yeah. And I had to explain this to a bunch of people who were like, oh, well, this happened. And we had a 10% increase. Yeah. And they said in our office, like, anyone have any questions for CMHC? Is like, yeah, ask them why they were off by 16%. And that's yeah. not a normal margin of error. And I'm not trying to be hard on them. Like, they're great and it's an imperfect science. But you can read from a lot of these what you want. If, you, if you're waiting for the market to stall
1: and get a smoking deal, well, I don't see it. I love how Chandler always does his little bit of political just covering my bases. And
0: then I, I walk it back a little bit. Just. Just like, okay, I love yeah, them. They're I'm, great. They're great. But they're they're wrong. the best oh, as man. I
1: apply for my CMHC takeouts there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will take that funding, CMHC.
1: <laughs> but I mean, just to put CMHC on blast. But no, yeah, I think they've made some really, some really inaccurate um, assessments. And yeah, it is a super hard thing to totally g- gain on. But like, they have an understanding of who's moving here, what the targets are for immigration, all the policies. There should be a little bit more idea, kind of be able to look forward because this is like the weather. Like they, they are just – it's completely – sometimes they hit and sometimes they're completely way off.
0: Yeah. Also, I go through this list here. Okay. Victoria, we shouldn't be as expensive as Victoria. We shouldn't be as expensive as Vancouver, Edmonton, or Calgary. Should we be as expensive or more or less expensive than Saskatoon? More. More. Regina? More. Winnipeg? More. Hamilton? Debatable. You've ever been to Hamilton? We should be more. <laughs> okay. No offense, Hamilton. No, but that, 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 that's a suburb of Toronto. Yeah, yeah, Whatever. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that should be a part. Toronto, we're going to be less than. Ottawa? Less. Less. Montreal? Less. Quebec?
1: More. General Quebec? Moncton? More.
0: Yeah. So those are the big markets. We should be somewhere in the middle of them. Yeah. And we're $200,000 less than the average cross country. Yeah. So – I'm not, I hate to say this, I think we're still going to go up a little bit more.
1: Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree.
0: So there you go, Jen. There's the answer to your question. We had one <laughs> other question.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we did have one more question. So from Ben, he said he enjoyed all nine episodes. Oh, Ben. Ben's our guy. And, but he said, I'd like to know more about how you guys are structuring your business lives. That's uh, a very big, broad, entire podcast episode, but maybe we yeah. give a quick – a little, maybe a little recap on kind of what we do and kind of how you do a general structure on it. And then we if someone likes what they hear or want to know more detail and specific of something, then we can kind of rip into that.
0: Yeah, I guess the challenges and, and <laughs> time management for dummies. I, uh, I told Tanner we should bring that up. <laughs> Got to read um, that real quick. I mean, I guess I would say I'm probably more engaged than you are in day-to-day residential sales anymore right? Like yep. you kind of step back from that. So my challenge is running a sales business, residential resale, you know, traditional real estate business while doing these things on the side. The way I've managed to do it is because I view them very, very similar. I feel like I'm doing the exact same thing. Just one I'm doing for clients and then one I'm doing it for, for me. Um, I'm in and out of properties all day. Yeah. So I'm in and out of rentals all day. I'm assessing values over here. I'm assessing values over there. So just from a a focus standpoint or from an expertise standpoint or whatever, I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, getting into my time management is a little bit trickier because I think I've been pretty open here in the past saying that I've struggled with that and trying to pivot my attention towards what really matters, which is getting that. Property off the ground that I'm building, which I'm six to eight months behind purely because of my own doing. The market's been crazy here. I've been stretched thin, so I haven't been able to focus on that. So, how do I balance it? I'm trying to, you know, right now I'm probably 80% sales still and 20% property management, which is foolhardy and shouldn't be. It just happens that I'll do property management for, you know, as much as most people do a full time job. And then I just work a lot of hours in, in, my main lane as well at the same time. But yeah, you so kind of have stepped back a little bit more. How are you managing? Because you run a few businesses.
1: Yeah, well, so just to quickly recap on yours. So you you basically you structure your main business is being a real estate agent, and you kind of structure things around that. Yeah. Uh, you're transitioning a little bit into into the the development side in the sense that not a little bit that you have lots of land, lots to build, lots to do, but you're still it's still primarily your time is focused on being a real estate agent. Yeah, and then it's becoming kind of almost an after hours and side thing mm-hmm. to run the properties. And work through that, which is, I think, uh, very common for a lot of agents. Um, and I mean, everyone takes it to a different level. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you're taking it to a level that I think will ultimately become your your development will become the, the, the main. main thing. Yep. So, yeah, my, mine's a little bit different. Uh, so I came into this already having a little bit of business stuff going on. Uh, so I started actually with a contracting company before I ever got my license. Um, so I had a contracting restoration business. So we do work for insurance companies. So if you have a fire, flood, mold, Mm -hmm. any of those kinds of things. So that's where I started with like a formalized business. I had a bunch of little businesses. I talked about that in episode one and how I got started. Those like the progression was made and I just dropped those businesses off. They were never big enough to really sell for anything. They were more just personal businesses. Uh, the time it became like a real business is when I got into, uh, the contracting side of things. At that time, I was already flipping houses and had some rentals. Again, that was just a very small business. It was me running it myself. I was very hands-on. I was doing a lot of the stuff myself. So things weren't too crazy. I I handled everything on my own. Once I started the contracting company, I was still actually in university at that point. Uh, It was a franchise. I bought it. They had so many requirements and rules. That's when I had to build out and get administrative and project manager and have other people involved. Kind of a blessing
0: in disguise when you think about it.
1: Think of what what you
0: learned having been required to do that.
1: Yeah. Like- Yeah. It was, I don't, I don't like discredit the franchise. It taught me a lot about business and things that you should do and best practices and how to get things in place and systems. Um, And so it it did that for me. So by doing that, I realized that, Hey, look, like I got to the point where there was job sites I'd never been to. And we went through the whole project. We did it. I got a check at the end, customer was happy and I never had to be there. And I don't want to say I got high on that, but I kind of did. And I was like, you know what, this is what I always wanted. Like, Mm -hmm. so then when I got my real estate license, I did that as like kind of a means to to buy more real estate and to kind of fill my time because as a contracting company, I don't physically need to be there. So I did, I was fortunate with the timing and it grew really big. So not really big, it's not nearly as big as Chandler, but like it, for me, it was, it was great. But so I, I built that up and it took over a big portion of my time. But honestly, all I did is I structured, so like that was my priority is selling homes uh, and rentals. And then on the side I had my contracting company and I had my own property purchases. Now in the last year I've made a big shift in the sense that being a, a residential agent I've I've kind of put down the back burner. I still proudly will say I am a top producer, but I've I'm not as prioritized on that in the sense that I've tried to take control of it. Uh, I'm a little bit more choosy on who my clients are. Uh, I have other agents that I will pass portions of my deals to and and that's giving me more time to work on my my rentals and that's how in the last 2 years I've gone from 5 units to 85 or whatever it is exactly now. Uh, units is because I ended up shifting my focus a lot um, just because it was something that maybe I I enjoyed more and I liked having a bit more control over. Um, And so the way I kind of structure my day to day is I've put priority on growing that business um, while still running the real estate agent business. So I don't put a ton of priority on growing that one. um, And I'm actually transitioning now into commercial. So I'd like to reduce my end count and, and go to more I guess high number ends in the sense of like, okay. High yield. High numbers, yield. Yeah. Ends. yeah. So it's a, it's a hundred million dollar building versus doing hundred million dollars in houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not purely because of money. I, I like the challenge. I like to change things up. I'm very much a person who changes it. So now I structure myself that my priority, my number one business is my, is my real estate that I physically own, my developments, those things. Uh, then I'm, I also have the, the commercial agent and, and the residential side. And then the, the contracting still kind of sits on the side. Unfortunately, That business, I realized as I went on, and this is something we talked about last time, is what my objective was in life, monetary, and freedom-wise. Contracting is a very intensive business. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And the reward at the end is good, but it didn't meet the requirements of what I needed to in the timeline that I needed to. Right? So I found that there was other ways that I could operate. And so I've allowed myself, and I'm big on hiring people. So like I hired somebody to do my property management, hired someone to do the project management, hired administrators, hired assistants. And that's allowed me to kind of have some more free time and still be able to, I say, enjoy myself because that's what I like to do is have my free time. So I, I've structured it a little bit different where I'm I'm constantly trying to step back. I'm always like I go in, do it, figure it out, then put somebody in that place. Whether that's writing a handbook and putting someone in that place or doing those kinds of things, I want to be able to be traveling somewhere and just check in and make sure that the steps are still being followed.
0: Yeah, and I think part of presumably why someone would ask this question is because maybe they're toying with the idea of changing from, okay, I've got this nine to 5 mm-hmm right? And until you replace that income, you kind of need that nine to five. 100%. You need it to qualify for mortgages. You need it to keep your lights on. You need it to provide for the people around you that you're responsible for. You need that. The question is, how do you then balance that time yeah. with going out and say managing even 10 units? Yeah. Right? like if, you're, if you are spread thin, managing even 10 units can be difficult. The bigger issue I find is, because people all the time be like, hey man, like You know, if you ever come, like, you know, you're a good agent. When you come across a 15-unit building, just send it my way, man. I'll buy it. It's like, yeah, you and everyone else. Yeah. Right? Like, how many times does someone come and say, hey, if you get a good deal on a 15-unit. Every day. You know, and we're going to say, well, if it's a good deal on a 15-unit, I'll probably buy it. Um, (laughs) But, and a lot of that stuff trades hands very privately. Big time. So, if you really want to switch into acquiring these, at some point, you know, you almost have to make that a fuller time job. Bit of a leap. You have to make that leap, or at least realize that you are spending all of your off time pursuing those things. Because you may have to, you know this, you might have mm-hmm. to talk to 15 sellers before you even get one who's maybe interested in selling. Hundred percent. And then that might take two years. So what are you going to do? Sit there and do nothing for two years, have no income? No, that means you've got to go, instead of talking to 15, 20, 30 sellers, you got to talk to 60 and a hundred and time. come back to them and, you know, spread the word out to other people. Like, Hey, if you have anything in this, that becomes a full-time job at some point. Yep. The challenge people have is to say, okay, I want to do this. Like, well, if you're, if you're not putting in the extra hours of due diligence to find those deals, it's going to be hard to grow. I even struggle with this myself. I'm I'm so committed to, to doing one thing that I don't have as much time to go out there and shake the trees and find other opportunities. I've Big got time. a nice full plate and for the next 10 years from a development perspective, but would I love to come across more deals all the time? Absolutely. Those big six, um, and
1: eight units, six units.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, just taking shots. here. You know. um, no, but uh, you know, there's somewhere out there. There's a 20-unit building that someone would sell. Yes, right somewhere. Somewhere, yeah, it's a deal, and and it's a solid deal, and and so on and so forth. But do I have the time this evening to do it? No, I got to write an offer, and I got to do this. So, the, what you've done well, I think, is. I have stepped back from that, taken the short-term loss. We talked about this in an episode. Take the short-term loss yeah. with the hope of building something else. For people who are not in a position to do that yet, you have to work long hours. I don't know that there's a solution to it beyond that.
1: Yeah. There's there's no replacement for working your butt off, which sounds cliche. Everyone says that there's no replacement for hard work, and that's really true. I found yeah. that out. We all found that out the hard way. The secret is there is no secret. The secret is there is no secret. I think uh, I have a lot of, uh, of my colleagues that are working full time jobs that want to get out of the full time job and run their own kind of gig, and I the thing I push them a lot is yeah exactly you need to kind of commit to just working like a dog and you can't you can't do everything you can't say okay I'm gonna now quit my full time job start this awesome business and then live like I'm just living it up mm, like yeah. unfortunately that those things can't all go together but I say to a lot of people like you're saying is so like hey okay, I have one colleague right now who's very much in that position. And I'm like, okay, like you have enough money to buy one or two small properties. Let's be very cognizant of where we buy them. Let's get them as Airbnbs. And I bet you off of those two, you will net probably almost close to what you're taking home now. Mm -hmm. And you'll be a little bit less. But it will allow you then to then pack out of your job and now you're full-time and now you can delve in super hard. You can go full-time door knocking and you can make that switch and you're never going to do that until you act, like you just have to bite the bullet and do it. And yeah. so.
0: You have to remove the safety net at, at some point. And it's I'd,
1: never it's just simple. It's never like, hey, you just do this and now you're able to do that. Otherwise everybody would just do it, right? There's, you have to, you yeah. have to lose a few hairs.
0: I think also you need to profile engineer the person that does what you want to be doing. Yep. Right. In the sense of like, okay, the person that I want to be in the life that I, I want to have for the next little bit, what amount do I need to live off of? And yep. what does that person live in right? Like you've made a practical decision to rent a property downtown for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Right. Maybe counterintuitive. Some people are like, well, why wouldn't you buy a house And blah, blah. blah. Like yep. we'll unpack that in another episode. But you know, I look at okay, if I was starting fresh, I could live lean and mean, like, what would be the first thing that I would do? Well, maybe I would have know, bought a place and lived in the cheap basement apartment, rented thing for a lot or Airbnb above, right? Yeah. That's the first thing I would have done. Then I would have figured out how many other, be it Airbnbs or rentals would I need to get there and how lean could I make my lifestyle? Yeah. Like, could I, is 50K the goal that I would need to hit to be able to stop working my other job, live as this individual with these properties to do that? Yeah. You have to profile, like engineer profile of the person that it would, that would be that one step ahead of you in terms of quitting their job and being able to do this. Yeah. And then from there, profile engineer the next person, like, okay, now I want a lifestyle of $150,000 a year. What does that person look like and what do they do? And then draw that profile and execute on that. Yeah. And that's what things people do kind of subconsciously, but that's what you're actually doing. It's emulation, it's planning, it's goal setting, but think of the person that you want to be, how do they work? What do they do? You know, does that person wake up at 11 or does that person wake up at 6.30? Big time. Right. And that's an oversimplification, but I think that's at least a good starting point.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think we should definitely do an episode on, on this whole thing of structuring your, how you structure your life, how to make the transition into business, uh, and then potentially also growth. Because I have a lot of comments I want to make right now. on like on top of doing all that, you should be already shooting two steps ahead all the time and you should be setting lofty, totally. lofty goals to kind of keep that fire under your butt. Yeah. But again, we don't really have necessarily the time to get into that. But I think
0: we should do an episode that's all on time planning and goal setting because I think those things go together well because you plan your time based on the goals that you have. Yeah. So I think that'd be a good episode. A couple other things we want to tease about what we might talk about in future.
1: Yeah. So one thing that's been playing into my head a lot and I'm hoping maybe the same for some other, some other listeners is economic recession. I mean, we we kind of were it was a topic before COVID. Then COVID happened. People kind of forgot about it. But in the sense, it was said that we're having a recession, but nobody really felt it because everybody's at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, some business. I'm mean, not to be insensitive, but there was definitely some businesses that got absolutely rocked and yep. destroyed by it. But then there was also a lot of federal money that went out. A lot of people got floated, and a lot of people got floated, and so. And I think for the average Joe, average consumer, I don't think they felt the impact of COVID as intensely on a financial scale as kind of expected. Um, yeah,
0: for what we went through, we were pretty unscathed. Now, yeah. I, and that's that going to sound really insensitive to certain individuals that, that had on throw. a micro level a terrible experience. Yes. But I don't think we as a whole, appreciate how <clears> – <throat> You know, could have been a lot, a lot, a lot worse.
1: Yeah. So as a whole, I think, I think it, 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 Canada and panned out fairly, fairly strong in this, but we've had a lot of growth in the last 10 years and now it's starting to be like, okay, what, what's the next thing, right? Like you look at history every whatever, 10-ish years, five, 10 years, there's always been a little bit of a reset or a little pullback. And we mm-hmm. really haven't had that yet. And so I'm just with, with the inflation taking place, uh, the issues overseas, China's new government regulations, like It's something that's playing on my mind a lot because it's how I'm making my decisions moving forward. So I just wanted to like start unpacking that and kind of make that a, a topic of conversation for us because I think it's going to be something that's going to become really relevant for for all of us.
0: Yeah, there were a lot of people speculating that because I think it was around 2008 there was a little pullback and then 2013 there was a little pullback. So I was like, okay, sometime around like 2018, 2019, there's going to be a little pullback here. And for all kinds of reasons, it didn't happen. And we so the question, yeah, the question is like, well, did we just kick it down the road 36 months? Is that forthcoming? Which yeah. is ironic considering what we were just saying with the housing market and saying that we feel pretty bullish on it. But I think you want to talk about some international factors that might play into this as well.
1: Yeah, I'm talking like a bigger scale. Like I think like, I don't want to say world recession because that sounds insane, but like I'm a little bit on the idea of this might be a literal global, global recession that we're going to face when it comes down the pipe.
0: Doom and gloom, Neil. Yeah. I'm what gonna, else are we going to talk about next episode?
1: Next episode, we're yeah. going to have a uh, very strong mortgage broker on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's going to, we're going to discuss everything regarding financing. We had some questions today regarding that, and we're going to keep it for then and just go over common misconceptions. They can offer some ideas, talk about some different products that are available. Yeah. And kind practical of just,
0: stuff for people trying to make some moves. Yeah, yeah. Like
1: just like we talked about when we were talking about buying, you need to have that strong team. This would be a broker that we would consider someone to be part of your strong team that can help you grow and and move forward. And so we're going to go over some of the ways that they can do that.
0: Yeah, it's a good personal friend of mine, Igor. He's done all my financing since the jump pretty well, and he's just a savant with this stuff, man. It's amazing. So we'll have yeah. him on and we'll talk about all that.
1: Yeah. So those are some of the ones that are coming up. Uh, again, comment, subscribe, like all that stuff. It's super cheesy, but we love all the stuff that you guys are posting. We're trying. Yeah. Uh, to get on it, we're starting to get a nice groove going here. We want to thank everyone too for listening. Like it's it's super exciting for us now to open it. It's awesome. And and yeah. get whatever it is, even it's fifty views or hundred views, to know there's even that many people is is super awesome. So and this is it. Neil's
0: like this is Neil's brainchild, right? Like never never stops moving. This was your idea to, you know, say I want to start some sort of. System for a podcast, right? Like, and and yeah, kind of right along that. It's awesome.
1: We talked about it in the first episode. My my yeah. my idea is to create some sort of, of community platform, platform yeah. and and this is the start of it that we can all kind of work together and help each other, uh, and and make it somewhere as a place for people that want to get into this business and any business can kind of grow and learn. Uh, I got to thank a lot of my my friends though for for kind of pushing on it. But we'll, I also, we'll I'd say. There. If you, lo- if you
0: watch this and you enjoy it to that end, can you like tell someone about it or share it or whatever? Because that would be huge. It would be huge. Uh, get more people listening. We'd love to yeah. get more people engaged. So awesome. I think that's everything. I got to run. You
1: yep. got to run. Thanks for so listening. We'll talk to you next time. Talk to you.